Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, delighted to be joined by Shahar Arez, the co-founder and CEO of Stoke Talent. Shahar, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. I'm not going to lie. When I first got an invite to have you on my podcast, it said Stoke Talent. And I know you're from Israel, but there's a football team in the UK. Stoke on Trent. Yeah. And I was like, is there a talent scout from Stoke wanting to come on my podcast? <laughs> so when we founded the company, I didn't, I didn't know Stoke on Trent was, existed. Um, um, I have a friend who ended up investing in the company that told me that he had an, um, a passion to start a startup company and he wanted it to be called Stoke. So he bought the domain, I don't know, like, you know, 15 years ago. And I was like, Stoke's a pretty cool name. I mean, it's, uh, you know, usually see surfers in California say, I'm stoked. Yeah. So I, I like the concept. And as I started thinking about what it is we're doing, uh, I was like, you know, what we, end, what we really do is help companies um, supercharge their organization with energy by you know, finding talent, freelance talent to help the, the organization move faster and grow. And so we're actually Stoke in town. By the way, for those who don't know, Stoke really comes from, you know, locomotive. You um, push on wood into the, uh, the train and then it moves faster. And so there, there was, used to be a profession called a stoker, the person that actually loads energy and to move faster. Interesting. I didn't know that. And you've just told me something new. Uh, I mentioned that you grew up in Israel and I, I, I know that you went to university there as well. But before university, what was life like growing up in Israel? Any fond standout memories, hobbies? Uh you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a 75 born. So I was, when I, when I was born in Israel, uh, it was still, a, it still is a small country, right? And the entire country is, uh, you know, its widest point is 70 kilometers. So it's, it's, it's pretty small. Um, uh, it used to be a rough neighborhood. I was born before we had peace with any of the, of the neighbors here and, and neighboring countries, I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't say we were isolated, but uh, until 1991, we had one TV channel in Israel. Uh-huh. Uh, and because of the, the, the Arab country's boycott, you were not allowed to have any Western like McDonald's or MTV. And none of those were allowed to uh, provide their services in Israel because the Arab country can say, if you, you deal with Israel, we're not going to let you sell in Arab countries. So we didn't have any of that. The first time I saw MTV, I was, it was 91. I was already 16. Um, and so, you know, we're uh, most of the time spending uh, outdoors, um, running, doing, you know, what kids do. That was me growing up here um, and looking forward for uh, to join the military. Israel has mandatory military service. Yeah. So that's my background. Yeah. Uh, my, my father's been to, to Israel uh, a, a number of times and uh, he, he's very fond of it. But the question I never, never asked him was, what's the population, do you know, of Israel? Uh, it's about 8 million now. 8 million. Okay. Eight. So slightly, because when you said 70 kilometers wide, I was like, is it smaller than Ireland? But Ireland's uh, half million. I don't know if the entire land is smaller than Ireland. Uh, Ireland, because it's kind of, it's, it's narrow and, 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 uh, and long, Israel. Well, mm, long. Yeah. 
Uh, it's like, I don't know. Uh, it's like 500 kilometers long and 70 kilometers in its widest point. So, well, wow. uh, so tell me this <clears throat> in university, you went to two different universities. The first one you, you studied computer science. Yep. And after you studied computer science, you went to a different university to get an MBA in marketing and entrepreneurship. Correct. You know, I've got a number of friends who studied computer science and I can't pick one of them who then went on to get an MBA in entrepreneurship. So you're going to have to explain that one for me. No, you got to find uh, I don't think it's that rare to be honest. Um, so first of all, I never, I never wanted to study computer science. I, um, uh, I spent five years in the military. Um, I never officially graduated high school. I did officially graduate when I was, I think I was 22 after my service. Um, my head was elsewhere when I was growing up um, um, and ended up completing my high school diploma after the military, getting a decent score on my, I don't know, SATs or whatever. And, and somehow I found myself getting a full three-year scholarship to go study computer science. Um, and I was like, someone's willing to pay my tuition and give me, you know, some, I got a little more just to, for living during those years, like full three-year tuition. It's like, I'll, I'll, I don't know, I'll go give it a try. And that's how I got into computer science. And I think I never, I always knew I'm not, I'm not going to be great at it. Um, I mean, I can, I can be okay, you know, a B minus maybe at computer science, but I think it opened, um, you know, a view for me into this world of tech and tech is far beyond, you know, writing pieces of code. It's how, how do you turn technology into business? And I think that's where I saw um, the intersection point. It's like technology is not just about, uh, you know, chips and uh, uh, um, pieces of code. It's like, how do you build applicable solutions to change day-to-day -day life or business life? And it's, I don't want to say if it's more difficult, you know, I don't want to get into who's more important developers or marketeers or salespeople. It's not what I mean, but I think it's, it's super difficult to take and find application for technology to create a better life or automate a process or, you know, or save lives or whatnot. And that's where I think I was able to take my technology background and my, uh, I wouldn't even say my business mind. It's just, having the ability to interact with people and listen to what they really need and connect the dots. So before we get into all that, lots of questions around, you know, future workforce thoughts on a couple of key topics. I want to start with uh, some of your previous roles. According to numerous articles, the average age for <coughs> that a successful founder starts a company at is 45. Um, I've worked for myself for the past six or seven years, so I'm not part of the average statistic. I'm not saying you have to be 45. You could be 60 or you could be 20, but the average is 45. You've got a lot of experience prior to Stoke, um, two years at HP and product management, four years at VMware leading the IT business management unit, four years at Kenshu finishing up as a CMO there. So the question I have is in your previous roles, and you can focus on the three that I've put in front of you, what are some skills or behaviors that you learned or improved during those times that helped you when you started Stoke Talent? Um, well, I've never been asked that, not in that manner. Um, you know, there's so much that you grow through different roles you take in your career that while you're going through that growth, you don't recognize until you're a few years down the road and kind of start reflecting on, yeah. you know, 
um, you always feel there's, you know, there's a lot of conversation in the past and a year, I'd say, about the imposter syndrome. You always think like you're not good enough. You're always, and then you realize you've grown so much through the years. Um, for me, um, uh, HP for me was the first company I worked for when I moved to California. And so for me to get into this understanding corporate America and how processes and decisions are being made, um, you grow up, you know, computer science graduate, thinking that the most important thing that exists is you building the product. The product is the most important thing. And uh, I think it only resonated with me when I moved to California that um, I work for a company that sells software that happens to create that software as well. But the leading indicator is selling that software. It's like, do you find the right customers? Do you know how to create the right packaging and pricing? Do you have the right route to market? It's like, if you just build something great, if you build it, they will come. Doesn't suffice. Anything you do needs to be connected to how eventually you're going to turn it into a business. If you're building a business, right? If you're building a nonprofit, something different. But if you want to create a business, like you got to start with, you know, just because I think I built something great and it might be great and the perfect piece of code and the fanciest UI and whatnot, doesn't mean someone's going to come and buy. It's like, how do you get in front of the right people? It's like, so this is where I started understanding that that element. I was young and, and, and didn't recognize it. I'll try to, um, to to pick one from each of the companies you mentioned. I know, just well, let's improvise. Um, VMware for me was you know a wild learning experience. There's so many things that uh, I, I can bring to that. I was so fortunate to join that company. At that point in time, uh, just to give the background, I joined VMware in 2010 in Palo Alto. Um, it was a period when the Bay Area was coming out of the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, VMware was well positioned, uh, and it was early days of cloud computing. No one really started talked about cloud computing until then. We're kind kind of pioneering the um, the industry back then, and I was part of founding team of a new business unit. Um, and over four years, we grew. Uh, we bought seven or eight different companies. We grew the business for about $60 million to a billion dollars in revenue. Um, and, you know, it was just first time I was part of a team that evaluates companies. Who do we want to buy? How do we buy them? How do we find the right price tag for them? How do you make decisions on what's the valuation of companies? So it's got so much learning for me. Um, and really, how do you create a new market category? What does cloud management meant no one spoke about cloud management before. And so I, I got to work with really stellar individuals. Uh, Paul Moritz, who was the CEO, and, and Ramin Sayar and Boaz Halamis, just you know, a bunch of people that I was fortunate to be in the room with them and, and, and just kind of pick that up. Um, and at some point, you know, I just, yeah, I got confident and, and started saying, you know, the industry is going in a certain direction. I think VMware needs to start investing in companies doing DevOps. And I was able to convince the company to give me access to funds and start investing in startup companies in that space. And Viramar ended up making probably another half a billion dollars off the investments that we led back then. And it was just, again, all these were a lot of learnings, how to work with VCs. I never worked with VCs before. And, and all of these, uh, um, I think, gave me a lot of the confidence and network that I needed later on when I decided to build my business. But I think that the most important thing for me was um, in a few different incidents, um, I heard Paul Moritz and Boaz was, uh, was also later on my board and a friend and a mentor uh, that taught me um, 
don't always try to be the smartest person in the room. You don't always have to speak up your opinion. You don't always have to argue and prove others. It's like some cases it's just okay to listen, internalize and give it some time. It's not always about arguing. It's not always about reading right. It's like there's, there's more than a single opinion. And, and I think it gave me a little more perspective on when do you chase your next you know, uh, um, position, role, uh, title, and when you just let things come to you. When is the right time for things to come in? And so for me, it was um, a humbling experience beyond all, everything else. Um, and then Kenshu, uh, no, Kenshu is when I found the opportunity to start taking my learnings and uh, be, be aggressive, right? Smaller company, I came in, I know what I'm doing. Let me, let me bring that into action. And so I was uh, able to restructure the, the product team, build a go-to-market, um, but also have the understanding that, you know, I don't make all the decisions here and maybe I should move on and find a place where I do like, get the opportunity to make the decisions. Absolutely fascinating. It was one point there where you said 60 million to 1 billion in four years. That's, that's, that's unicorn status. And to go from 60 million to 1 point, sorry, 1 billion in four years is phenomenal. There's a number of companies here alone, like take Outreach, for example. I know they're aiming and they're EMEA side of the business to reach unicorn status by financial year 2024, if I'm correct. So, and they'll have been here probably five or six years at that point. So phenomenal that you've done that. Um, there's a great line on your LinkedIn. I'm reading from my screen here and it says Leonardo da Vinci created the first professional uh, resume in 1482 and not a whole lot has changed since. So rather than me give the 30 second commercial of what Stoke talent is, the mic is yours. Stoke's a platform that helps companies bridge how they're currently operating uh, to the gig economy where future work is heading. If you think about it, we've spent the last century hiring full-time employees and perfecting the process of hiring full-time employees, but the market has made the decision that people don't want to be full-time employees anymore. People want to do work that they're passionate about. Companies need the flexibility and Stoke is the enabling platform to execute that vision. You put up a post today on LinkedIn a couple of hours ago, and it said, the best advice I can give any aspiring CEO is to trust your people to hire the right people. Um, it went on to touch about like not needing to be involved in every, every yeah. hire and whatever. Um, if you had a, a, a team leader who had made a few bad hires, there's still a couple of open, open positions in a team, and they came to you and said, like, essentially, they were looking for your guidance. Um, and I'm sure many can resonate with that, which is what's going on with the great resignation. How would you deal with that? So again, just to give context for the for the post, uh, there's a lot of verbiage in the industry around, you know, you, uh, CEOs have to interview every employee in their startup until they get to Pioneer or, or anything of that sort. And in the beginning, I thought the same thing. Uh, but from my early days as a team lead myself, I told someone asked me once, what do you do as a team lead? I said, all I have to do is hire the right, the right people. And then, you know, every now and again, I need to check in. Other than that, that's my job. Just get the right people in. If you think about it as a CEO, if you get the right leadership team, Trust them to make the right hires. Now, more often than not, by the way, they'll ask me to meet individuals they're not certain about and come to me and say, hey, do you mind talking to them and giving your opinion? And I always say yes. 
However, mandating that every hire needs to go through me means I'm not trusting the individuals to make those decisions. Um, so if a team lead uh, came to me and said, after you know a few bad hires and search for guidance, um, a um, you know I'm a great believer in um, researching. Uh, researching sounds like a, you know I come from a culture. I spent some time in my military service in the Air Force. In the Air Force, the Israeli Air Force is known for its methodical, I even say fanatic process of researching everything that happens. So an average pilot takes three periods a day or three flights a day. After every flight, there's a process in which you're sitting down and kind of explaining what happened, what I've done, what I've done wrong, what I've done right, and how am I going to do better next time? doesn't matter if it's a perfect flight, you always go through that process. And so I'm a great believer in going through that process every, again and again and again in order to get better. So I would start with that individual. Let's look at each and every hire you made. It's like, what happened? What have we missed in the interview process? How do we not miss it next time? And how do we get better? I would offer them, I can obviously join their interview. I can, uh, um, you know, I can ask them to record their interview. There's a lot of different methods to go, to go about it and how to give the feedback. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting for me when it comes to that topic because, and I, I think it's EMEA only, but there was a hundred billion invested last year in EMEA uh, companies with 8,000 VC backed companies getting between 2 million to 50 million in investment on average. And all of them are looking to grow, obviously, with, with the revenue they've got, but all of them are competing for talent, but the talent pool hasn't necessarily grown. So to me, this this topic of of hiring and, and, and how to spot good talent but also retain them is is um is something that I think is just gonna get louder over over the next while. And and there's a lot that companies are trying to do. And to be perfectly honest, um I I, I think a lot of the stuff they're doing is just PR to get their name out there. So when it comes to the future so just just to that, by the way, I think one of the problems that I see there with exactly what you're saying, um, there's a lot that, you know, the, 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 the growth we've seen in the tech sector over the past 24 months, obviously, is pretty obvious. Everyone wants to hire, everybody needs top talent, um, but everyone's kind of repeating the same behavior. We want full-time employees. The talent shortage isn't going away. More companies will need more talent. Even if, you know, all universities are going to train, it's going to take, you know, five to 10 years to bridge the gap. It's not getting bridged anytime soon. Companies need to think outside the box, how they keep executing with the assumption not everything needs to be full-time employees. All companies are mimicking each other. You know, let's give better benefits, lavish happy hours, vacation days, whatnot. Companies need to adapt to a world where um, a growing number, by the way, in the US uh, over the next three years, 50% um, of the workforce will be freelancers, for example. It's like, what are companies doing about putting a strategy in place to have a portion of the workforce, a growing portion of the workforce being freelancers, on-demand projects, individuals, not full-time employees? How do they right size the, the, the size of the team to the size of the project? And most companies just, you know, are, are kind of staring at the headlight, trying to do the same thing about how do we hire? How do we hire? How do we get the right people? What ends up happening is you get the talent just jumping from one company to the other just to get a better pay. The average tenure per employee has dropped below two years. So the average employee in the tech sector is about 1.9, 1.8 years now working for the same company. 
And so companies that don't adapt to the new reality and try to stick to the normalities of, you know, 10 years ago, are just going to fade away. So part of what you're saying is throwing more money at retaining employees or just trying to get employees in the door is not the greatest strategy in the world. I think it's, it's not going to get you anywhere because you're going to throw more dollars. The other side is going to throw more dollars or you're going to throw more dollars. It doesn't buy loyalty. Dollars don't buy loyalty. People will be there and they'll get bored. There's endless researches, regardless of what we're seeing in the last you know, two years, go back 10 years, 20 years. There's endless researches. People, when you give them a raise, they're happy. They forget about it within the next paycheck. Yeah. And so that's not the way to solve the talent shortage. You need to think differently how you redesign the organizational DNA to allow you to constantly have pumping new blood into the organization, stoking the organization with talent, thinking maybe I should start using talent, not just from my neighborhood, going, finding talent, you know, South America, far, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, on-demand projects. How do I augment my team with other resources? I spoke to a company, a large company. It's, you know, it's a Fortune 500 company a couple of days ago. Um, I think there are 30 or 40,000 employees um, and they have over a thousand open headcount. And every time I speak to them, that number is growing. It's not shrinking, it's growing. They lose people faster than they can hire people. And so you can come and say, well, you know, we work hard to make it stop. At some point you kind of recognize it ain't stopping. Yeah. There's, there's a friend of a friend who was a frontline sales manager for probably six months at this particular time of the story. And he was offered 140,000 pounds more than the wage of his current role to leave to go to another company because of the staff shortage. And the first thing I thought was, are they not just going to like be completely screwed come Q4 of this year when they realize 95% of the employees that they hired are shit? So by the way, I think a, I don't know if the employees they hired are shit or not, maybe, but I can tell you that companies are at a point where, um, they're paying so much money because they want the employees They have to show they're hiring because that's their KPI. And guess what? At some point you start to look at the financials and you realize you're paying arm and arm and a leg to get these people in, but your business isn't justifying those numbers. And we see that now, by the way, just, I just saw, um, uh, walk me, um, a pretty successful tech company announced their financial results yesterday. Wix announced their results yesterday. And the one thing, these companies are successful companies, but their spend is so high. Their growth is healthy, but they're losing money for over 12 years now. They're not able to make a profit because they end up, you know, we have to pay higher salaries, right? You're not justifying the business. You have to justify the business at some point. So it's okay when you're early day startup. But if you just keep feeding that beast and just spending more and more money, you're not going to be able to justify the business down the road. Well said. Two more questions before we finish up. There's lots of blind spots in building a business and you've built a successful business, not building your bench, not paying attention to the lead generation. I could go on. What's one blind spot that you see other companies who have the goal of selling in three to five years that if they got right, they would improve their price to sale ratio? Um, I'll focus on, on early stage tech companies, if that's okay with you. Um, I think the one blind spot I had, um, and I think most founders have, we're so fixated on building a product technology because that's where we're, we're, we're thinking, everyone's talking about product-like product growth. 
um, is I started too late in marketing and sales. Most you spend a lot of time focusing on building the product and you can, well, I'll start marketing and selling it when the product is ready for that. Um, don't start selling and marketing the product way before it's ready. Start tr getting in leads, start trying to sell the product, fail. It's going to take so long to find the right sales process, the right marketing message, um, the right installation, the right user. And the first, you know, 12 to 24 months are critical in the propensity of a company to break through. And so early on, you know, again, it depends on the business, obviously. Um, six months before your product's ready, start selling it. Start promising uh, uh, things to your customers, get into engagement, start setting up calls. There is a certain time, because what ended up happening to us as a company, I can say, uh, we were ready to start doing that, uh, I think after six or eight months, and then the pandemic hit. And then I said, well, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to wait a while. And then we waited another six months. And then I started wrapping up on sales. And, it, you know, and then it ended up taking me, I think, almost 18 months to start seeing any customers on the platform. Wow. And, and then it's kind of, you know, if what happened after 18 months would have happened after 10 or 12 months, it's a completely different story for the company. Because you have a lot more money in the bank. You have a lot more runway to go before you need to go for your next funding round. And so start very early being aggressive on bringing on SDR sales marketing. Final question for you is, and I'm not too sure what the education system is like growing up in Israel, um, but in Ireland, let's focus on kids between 10 to kind of just before they go to university. So I don't know, maybe 16, 17. If you were in charge of adding a mandatory subject to the curriculum of school kids in Israel that's not currently on the curriculum what subject would that be and why wow um so yes it's, it's funny you're asking me that today my son I have a 14 year old son um and actually tomorrow he's going for a, a startup competition when he's gonna pitch his idea as a slide deck on funding and how much he wants to get it but um he's going to like a cyber class and that's why they do it but I think that um that thought process challenging kids in their junior high years, I would say 12 to 15, yeah. when they're not very young, but they're not already, you know, in their late high school years, going through, um, I don't know if it's called business game. Uh, in MBAs, there's something called a business game when you're, you know, you're assigned a budget and a project and you start, you know, simulating a, a real business. There's so much learning in the process. I mean, I spent time with him yesterday with my son. He needed to bring in uh, a budget plan for the company, you know, revenue, expenses, how to calculate. It's like I had no idea. I didn't know 10% of those terms growing up. Yeah. The fact that he's thinking through the process is calculating the break even point, which is mind boggling, just amazing. The, the ability of um, kids that went through this project to hit the ground running um, is just tremendous. By the way, I say that I think it's important. I think it's not less important to expose these kids to, um, um, uh, how should I say this, to the other walks of society, um, you know, the, the less fortunate sides of society, um, to understand that the economy is not just built on tech companies. I think it's as important to expose them to be um, honest, decent human beings who understand that they're not better than anyone else. 
Uh, I think that's lacking today as well. I think we're, we're in a world where there's um, almost a line of delineation between privileged and less privileged individuals. You know, we're privileged, we're in the tech sector. Um, I, I, I wrote a note to people in my company when we sold it, um, how fortunate we are. You know, even without selling the company, we're fortunate. Half the world's population has to deal with less than an income of $5 a month. And, you know, we get to sit down, record podcasts, have, have a roof and, and a budget. And so um, I, I think these two together um, are super important to create a healthier society and help uh, uh, kids fulfill their destination as they grow. Shahar, it's been a real pleasure spending the last 30 minutes chatting Excellent. with you. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you. Beautiful morning. Get a sun in my morning bed.